This is Daniel Barron, and welcome back to Season 2 of The Winemaker's Journey. Today in Episode 4, I talk with veteran viticulturist Zach Berkowitz to get his unique take on the practical side of grape growing. Zach has been a vineyard owner, a winery owner, and a vineyard manager, and has worked with small and large growers in both the premium North Coast and in the more production-driven Central Valley. His wide breadth of knowledge, as well as his systematic approach to record-keeping and communications, has made him a highly sought-after consultant. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome back to Season 2 of The Winemaker's Journey. Today, on Episode 4, we're going to be talking with my friend and colleague, Zach Berkowitz, a quintessential viticulturist who calls himself a vineyard guy, uh, but Zach has been working in viticulture since the early 70s, um, has done quite a bit of different things out in the vineyards as well as being a partner in a winery and has a really great understanding of viticulture, both the history and the current thinking about precision farming and large-scale farming and all different aspects. So welcome to the podcast, Zach. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here. So just real briefly, tell tell the listeners, I mean, where, you grew up in Southern California, right? Yeah, I was born in the Bronx. As I tell people, I don't, I'm not multiple generations in viticulture. And, uh, I grew up in Southern California, and uh, after high school went to UCLA when it was easy to get in there, and um, worked as a mailman in Venice, California. What, and year, like, would, what year would that have been? That had been 71 and 72. It must have been a little wild in Venice in 71 and 72. Um, I got invited to come in people's houses and have a good time. <laughs> um, but I liked working outside, and um, I had done uh, a little time with some organic gardening um, at a farm in uh, in Southern California, and um, and with a buddy of mine at the time, Ernie, we both wanted to move up to Napa and or to Northern California and get involved in grape growing. What what? How did you go from, you know, a, a suburban kid in Southern California to a UCLA student to a mailman to grape growing? That, wasn't that kind of a jump? Well, it was, it was a big jump. My wife and one-year-old daughter moved up to Napa, and I enrolled at Napa College. I figured that was the way to get in, was to get an education in it. I didn't know anything. We were um, getting a lecture on vineyard development and doing backhoe pits, and I wrote, I remember in my notes, backhoe, B-A-C-O. I didn't know anything, <laughs> but I was a sponge. And um, it was, you know, it was the, uh, what did we call it, the wine boom back in the early 70s? Yeah, it's certainly the grape planting boom. Yeah, and um, I had some part-time jobs, one of which was with um, this French-owned company called M&H Vineyards at the time, Moet and, and, Moet and Hennessy Vineyards. And um, 
when I was done with, I only had to go for a year because a lot of my stuff from UCLA counted. And um, uh, at the end, I had a couple job offers. One was with Justin Meyer at Franciscan, I think, at the time. Yeah. Because I took a wine class with him and had a lot of questions, and we chatted a lot. And the other one was to keep working at this M&H Vineyards, which turned into Domaine Chandon eventually. So this was, I guess they came in and developed the vineyards in in the Yontville area before they built the winery, huh? Yes. Yeah. Um, And Carneros and Mount Feeder also. Oh, uh huh. Yeah. So I did wind up taking the job at Chandon, as you know. And that would have been 74 is when you started there? Yes, in February 74. So back in the day of John Wright and Will Nord, right? Yeah. yeah. That was, it was like working for a startup almost. And I don't think people who are new to the Valley understand what a, what a paradigm changer Domaine Chandon was for that whole Yontville area. It was... It was you guys were kind of like the hip kids hanging out at the diner and, uh, you know, Donine and you and Ernie and Will. And there was kind of a whole, a whole crowd of, of people. That was probably a little later, probably the early 80s, when it really kind of started to snowball, right? And Philippe Gentil in the yeah. kitchen. Yeah, I think having the restaurant was a big thing. Um, but, I, you know... It was maybe a little bit unique working there because of the French connection, so to speak, um, and being uh, being tuned in to what they're doing in, in France and other parts of the world also because there were Chandons in other countries. So it kind of gave a kind of a feeling of confidence, I think. And um, so we were kind of strutting our stuff a little bit and... Yamfil was just this sleepy little town. I mean, I drove through there the other day. It's like completely changed. I mean, you know yeah. that. It's those are the days of the Yontville Saloon and the, yeah. the, the diner, and and that those were the epicenters of of the what would we call the alternative movement in yeah. in uh, in mid Napa Valley. And and Yonville was the town where the the workers lived. the The owners lived in Saint Helena. Yeah. That's that's true, and um, nowadays um, I don't know how true that is. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But in a funny, I hadn't really thought about it till you you mentioned it. But that really seemed to me to color your approach to to viticulture because you got a very wide ranging view. Uh, how so was. In the history of, of M&H, was the California Project the first one out of France, or had they developed uh, Australia, or Ar- I'm sure Argentina came after California, right? No, I think Argentina was first. Okay. And it was, it was bigger, too. Uh-huh. It was a big operation. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, but, but when did you... Well, let's, ba- let's back up for a second, because I know... That you got a degree from Davis after, so you were working and getting a degree at Davis, and, and were you sponsored in that by M&H? Well, you know, in the early days, I mentioned it was kind of like a startup. John Wright was, who was the 
founder and president, was um, he was somebody that always said yes. Hey, I want to try something in the vineyard. Let's do it. Um, there was never, uh, you know, how much is it going to cost or, or what's the payback. It was, you know, we were just out there trying new things. And um, so I approached him and said, hey, I want to I wanna go back to school and get a degree at Davis. And he said, great. And, you know, I figured out how to make it work on my schedule. I'd, I'd uh, go to work and make sure all the tractors and crews were going. I was a vineyard manager then. And uh, everything was working. I'd say, I'll see you in the afternoon. And I'd take off for Davis. And when I got there, um, you know, there were co-eds playing ultimate Frisbee out on the lawn and all the all the stresses of work disappeared, and I would take a couple classes and come back. And um, I think um, I think I paid for the schooling, but I, you know, had um, free free range to to take classes, and as long as the work got done. So that would have been the late seventies. Yeah, I think I finished in eighty. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was a good period in terms. Olmo was still there. Cleaver was still there. Um, Jim Cook, Lloyd Leiter. You know who Jim was Leiter. still there? Was Albert J. Winkler was still around. Yeah, he was still around. Yeah, it was anyway, Jim, yeah, Lloyd was at the university. Jim was the farm advisor yes. in Napa. Yeah. So when was your first international trip? And you saw did you did you get to Champagne fairly early in the in your tenure there? Yeah, we we had a uh, a trip for other employees as well. It was kind of a um, a reward for getting things off to a good start, and a bunch of us went, and um, uh, and it was wonderful. It was my first, I think it was my first time out of the country. Wow! Other than like Canada or Mexico, right. but. Um, and it was awesome. And, of course, it was champagne, so it was like the, going to the mothership and, you know, seeing the spacing and, you know, everything. It was wonderful. And, um, uh, and some of us continued and went to Spain and, um, and into Italy as well, took advantage. Wow, so that really must have opened your, your perspective on what was possible and different ways to... And as someone said recently, you know, this is most of what we do is problem solving, right? Sure. Um, and so, when you come up against something you haven't seen before, it's really helpful to have these international colleagues that you can consult with. Yeah, you know, I came I came back and planted a little plot using um, the spacing they had there, which was like one meter by something, and. Uh, I had the um, Cordon Royal and the um, Royal Champagne pruning, and I was the only one that could do that because the guys had no idea what what this was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, but um, you know the spacing was really interesting to me at the time, um, and just the 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 conscious care that they gave the vines. Um, 
It was almost like a reverence for the vines. Yeah, I think that's and, um, probably what we all take home from those trips. That's yeah. the most applicable. Those spacings on those old, old soils don't necessarily translate that well to our richer California soils. But the reverence, that's a great, a great term, Zach. Yeah. Yeah. And then somewhere along the line, so Ernie, Ernie also uh, came to work there, Ernie Weir. Yeah, we um, both moved up to Napa at the same time and um, went to the JC and both started working at Chandon at the same time. I think I was one day earlier than him. <laughs> and so at some point you guys uh, started Hagafen. You told me there were four of you. Four yeah. partners originally. Yeah, we had. There was a third friend of ours who lived in Northern California, and Rene DeRosa was a partner after a while because we used um, the first wines we made were um, white Riesling that would be available by Passover of the next the next year because Hagafen was a kosher wine. And I, 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 now I finally understand why uh, Renee would, I'm trying to remember what it was. There was this movie where Renee was, one of his favorite questions was, do you really think wine is the blood of Christ? And then he would pull out a Hagafen Riesling. I'd say, what, how, how can this white kosher wine be a metaphor for the blood of Christ? I mean, the blood of Christ at least would be red. But now I understand why he was, uh, he was promoting it. Yeah, he, he was um, not just the grower. He was into it. And uh, he was a wonderful partner. And I mean, such a wonderful guy. Was yeah. he? Was there any any Jewish roots for him? Was I don't think so. Just something he thought the time was right for. Yeah. Well, we knew him because Shandon bought fruit from Winery Lake. Right. And we had sort of hit it off, and um, and um, so when we needed fruit, we went to him, and he made it. Uh, That's right. Easy That's for right. us to work with him. Uh-huh. Let's put it that way. <laughs> So you sold uh, your share, you and Norm sold your share to Ernie at yeah. some point, what, early 80s? Yeah. Yeah, I'm probably like, I want to say 82, something like that. Yeah, and Hagafen is still going strong. Yeah, yeah, I know, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So in addition to being a part of a winery, you also are a vineyard owner in Carneris and still have, uh, what, what do you call your vineyard? Rancho Carneros Vineyard. The Rancho Carneros Vineyard, where you're growing Pinot Noir partic- yes, primarily? Yes, it's Pinot. Most of it is, there's 17 acres, and um, like 80% of it is 50 years old this year. Wow. So did that ever go into Hagafen? Um, it went in the, before we went commercial. We did a sort of a test run, and then... Went and spoke to um, liquor stores down in L.A. and people like that. And uh, it was a rosé of (laughs) Pinot Noir. It didn't matter what it was. It was just the concept. Right. And people were receptive, for sure. Nice. And so you retired in, what year did you retire from Shandong? 2000. 2000. So now this goes on 21 years that you've been a, a vineyard consultant. I know. And that really opened up your world, too, because you were primarily making sparkling wine and addressing the 
issues around growing grapes for sparkling wine. And since leaving Chandon, you've branched out into much more still wine issues around uh, robust reds like Cabernet Sauvignon and Zinfandel. And and you've also, um, as someone once told me about consulting, you you think you're going to only be making wine for the equivalent of Chateau Lafitte, but you end up uh, taking the jobs where they are. And in your case, that led you to, to Lodi in the Central Valley, right? Yeah, I had, we, at Chandon, we bought grapes from uh, Ron McManus, who's a big grower in Ripon area. And when I left Chandon, I let him know that I was consulting, and he said, hey, come on out, I want you to help me, I'm selling to um, more and more North Coast wineries, and, uh, and you know, I want to do a good job. So, um, so I was going out there every couple weeks, I think. Uh, it was kind of a schlep to get out there, but it was awesome because it's what I call real viticulture. Um, you know, I, I, I arrived one day, and they had just found powdery mildew. And within an hour, there was 100 guys out there leafing. And by the end of the day, there was another 75 or something, and they were just plowing through. And um, if something needs to get done, boom, it gets done, and uh, in a big way, too. And um, so, and I, I remember, you know, we were doing leafing and shoot thinning and stuff, and I, I recommended doing a little bit of um, thinning out some clusters where it was crowded. And, and Ron said, um, no, we're not going to do that. I said, okay. And after doing that a couple times, I said, so, so we'll do the, all the good viticulture stuff, but we're not going to touch the fruit. He said, that's right. Because there, that's how, that's how you make it, is with the lower prices and more tonnage. Um, so it took me a little while to figure that out. And um, what kind of tonnages were they were they looking at? You know, like fifteen tons an acre on Chardonnay, and uh, and it was it was pretty good. You know, I mean, it wasn't like um, you know the, you know Russian rivers, you know, uh, Wenty clone, but um, it was quite good. Yeah, how many acres were were they were you talking about there? Um, I don't remember the the. The number it was like I want to say 500 on one ranch, and then there were some other ranches added, and then he got into Lodi, and um, and we'd go look at stuff there too. Wow. So, is there lessons from that kind of large-scale viticulture that you find yourself bringing back to the smaller-scale North Coast viticulture? Well, I think. Um, you know, efficiency is always good, especially even the small-scale small guys are learning now with labor shortages that being efficient is a good thing. And, um, uh, and the other thing, I think, is um, not talking about it but doing it. Like, if something comes up, you know, you don't have to get Congress together to... It's like they just do it, and right. um, and I thought that was that was a good lesson too. Yeah, I think a lot of the North Coast, you have 
the the brain trust has a certain uh, idea, but how it actually gets implemented in the field is sometimes a little different than what the brain trust thinks is going to happen. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that communication and um, having the the rank and file be in sync with the with the decision makers is is sometimes missing. It, it, which you'd think would not be the case in the small scale, but you can't afford to do that in a large-scale vineyard like that where the margins are thinner, too. I mean, yeah. the prices are, are so much lower. One of the things that that I've always admired about you is that, that you have uh, you've established a lot of systems to, you know, like pruning weights. You've, you've got these formulas and these... Uh, uh, tally sheets that have the calculations built in, and, and did that develop at your time at, at Chandon? Was that something that you you worked through? How did you develop that? Yeah, it was during my time at Chandon. I mean, I think I've probably added to some since then, but um, I, I mean, I like numbers and um, calculating things, and uh, and maybe an influence was Richard Smart. He has a lot of um, sort of metrics kind of things and um, and other people as well. So, and I, I've, I've always liked the idea of like, what is vine balance? And um, so, you know, crop to pruning weight or crop to leaf area, if you're doing that kind of thing, um, things like that, I think are, are helpful. Yeah, and to understand, I, I, it's funny how... Winkler's term capacity has kind of fallen out of the parlance, and I think it's it's something that's that's really important to understand that you know your expectation out of a small vine growing on rocky hillside soils is not the same as a big vine uh, on the valley floor, and and the amount of leaf area, the amount of irrigation, the amount of crop they can support um, are all linked to that that inherent capacity of the vineyard. Yeah, I, I still use the word capacity all the time because it really does describe the potential for that vineyard and um, in terms of how much it's going to grow and how much it's going to produce. And, you know, trying to pump it up with fertilizers and stuff to do more than its natural capacity is, um, I don't think that's... That's good for quality. Or conversely, thinking you can thin a valley floor vineyard to the same level as a hillside and have the same concentration and intensity. Um, in fact, the reverse happens because you need the crop to actually be a break yeah. uh, on the vigor. Um, so with all your travels um, around the world and you know throughout California... Did you encounter vineyards or regions that you you think of as a paradigm for farming excellence? How did you, do you have anything that you kind of look back on and say, now those, that vineyard or that region really knows what they're doing? I thought Burgundy was, I never went to Bordeaux. That's one place I missed. Um, but I did get to travel to Burgundy, and I thought as a Pinot Noir grower and as a vineyard manager that grew a lot of Pinot Noir, <clears throat> that, was, that was something going there. And um, 
seeing, talking about balance, you know, finding that, that good balance that they, that they have there and the attention to detail and all. That was impressive. And um, I think there's a lot of great vineyards in California. I know that you continue to explore and to think about uh, farming and viticulture. Are there things that you're excited about right now that you see on the horizon or, or you know, just starting to be implemented? Well, one that you and I are kind of working on these days is um, early leaf removal or pre-bloom leaf removal as a way of improving quality. And um, I have a few people trying it this year. I'm, I think we're going to learn a lot this year, like where it's better suited to improve quality. And... Um, uh, and I, I love the idea of going in early and, um, and then you're finished. So give the listener a little, a little history. First of all, this is, uh, the professor is Pony, P-O-N-I. Yeah. And, and he is in Italy. Is he Italian, but is he working in Spain? I was a little confused. No, he's in, um, he's in Italy and, um, I've exchanged some emails with him asking him questions and, uh. Yeah, I think the idea is that you you leaf before bloom and it it uh, affects the source sink. Not any time before bloom, right? No, no, but that just before just bloom. Just before bloom. Yeah, thank you. And um, so it affects the growth. I think if you're in a real vigorous vineyard, it can affect the growth to slow down the growth. And you get looser clusters because it affects set in what we might think of as a negative way, but... If you have big, tight clusters, it lets more light in. And so you wind up with, um, uh, you know, higher anthocyanins and lower pyrazines and, um, you know. Less bunch rot. Yeah, yeah. So. And the point is you don't have to go back in and touch the canopy again. So You know, I asked him because of know, where I we tried that. it, um, you know, it starts to fill in again. And he said, no, no, no. Just leave it. As he said, we like, we like the canopy to get a little shaded at some point, or the fruit zone to get shaded at some point. Now, this was such a strange year because one of the things that it also seems to do is, at least in the, in the research papers, is suppress the pushing of the laterals. And my, my interpretation, and tell me if you agree, but I think that you know, what's happening physiologically is the shift from using reserves and this year's photosynthates to only using this year's photosynthates, which happens around the time of set. And so if though the leaves that are adjacent to the clusters are removed, then there's a little bit of a lag before the vine can make that shift. And that lag is what pulls the, so the, the clusters become the sink for the leaves above them and thereby starve the lateral meristems and the shoot tip meristems so you get less lateral growth and less extension of the shoots um, and less set because you're, you have that lag. 
What in 21, where the laterals were already pushing, it'll be interesting to see what happens if it slowed them down because it was such an odd year. With it seemed like the the cold weather suppressed the shoot tips and that the vines compensated by pushing the laterals sooner than we normally see them. Is that your? Yeah, I, no, I would agree, especially on like Pinot Noir, for example. Right. Um, yeah, that's why I, that's why I said I think it'll be we'll learn a lot this year about this because first of all it was a weird it's a strange year to do this for the reasons you said um, and I told him we pulled fewer of the he he recommends six leaves first six leaves and you know at bloom time you should have like twelve leaves right so you're removing half the leaves and I told him. You know, we had a lot of weak growth and slow, you know, delayed growth. And so we only pulled like four leaves in some cases. And he he thought we might not see as much effect than had we done six. So that might be, if we do see more laterals, that might be related to that. Um, but I think the season is, is just so weird that... Um, there's some things we might have to do again next year to see how they work. And hopefully we get normal growth next year. We can remove six leaves and see what the effects are. Yeah, and I think we may need to change that that uh, metric because it's one thing to leave to remove six leaves when there's 14, and it's another to remove six leaves when there's eight. Yeah, and that's why we did fewer leaves. Right, yeah. so six leaves or half, which whichever is mm-hmm. is less, right? I don't know. Yeah, we'll we'll have to write our yeah, own and, protocols. And this year also I think we're getting more growth later, you know, after bloom than we normally do. So but I think we'll see if if there's improvement in quality. Right. Or if we think there's improvement in, in quality. And then the other point about and and this is called uh, we call it pre-bloom leafing, but it seems in the literature it's called early leaf removal, mm-hmm. ELR. I think it's also important to know when it's not indicated because in a in a low-vigor vineyard, you could be creating too much exposure, right? Yeah. I, once again, I think it's, it's really um, best... It has the biggest impact on vigorous vineyards with big clusters, and so if you're in a, you know, a scrawny Cabernet vineyard with scrawny clusters, it's probably not going to be helpful or very much, if at all. Versus if you've got, <clears throat> you, know, you know, a vigorous Merlot vineyard with, you know, has big wing clusters, um, you probably have more effect there. Yeah, and I would I would also be a little reluctant with Merlot because you, you look at it cross-eyed and it doesn't set. So yeah. um and I wouldn't do it with clone six cabernet. So again, we're gonna have to learn about what where where and when it's appropriate in terms of variety and selection and and capacity. There's yeah. our word again. Yeah. What worries me is when it when uh, it may work well in one vintage and not another, and that that's that gets nerve wracking. Well, I think the good news is <clears throat> the people I'm doing this with are doing it on a small scale, and um, 
one one uh, grower, we wound up just doing like, I don't know, a hundred vines, it turns out, in a couple places. Just like, let's see what this does before we do half a block or something. Right. Let's take a short break. Winemaker's Journey is sponsored by Complant Wine, a partnership between my son Sam Barron and myself. Our mission is to make artisanal, moderate alcohol, single vineyard wines with vibrancy and finesse. Visit us at complantwine.com, C-O-M-P-L-A-N-T, wine.com. And by nakedwines.com, a passionate community of the world's best winemakers and wine drinkers, changing the way great wine is made. I'm proud to be among those winemakers. Look for the release of the 2019 Francophone Cabernet Sauvignon in 2021. Let's get back to our conversation with the Zach Berkowitz. Anything else uh, on the horizon that you're thinking of? Well, I'm I'm interested in, um, you know, these uh, remote sensing kind of things. Um, that are uh, can sense the the crop load and leaf area and things like that. That I'm really interested in. That how do those work? Um, I don't know the details, um, but you you know drive down the row and um, um, and there's a sensor that can recognize the fruit from the foliage and. Um, you know, measure the canopy size and can also, I saw a thing recently where they're picking up, I think, viruses. Right. So, um, and I'm a, trying... You could have a, a dog on there smelling for... A... Yeah. <laughs> Is, isn't that part of the, um, the Monarch Tractor? Shout out to Monarch Tractor. Isn't that one of the things that they're offering as a feature? I don't know that. Yeah, it seems to me that, that, or it certainly could be. You just run your electric uh, tractor driverless through the vineyard and, and let it uh, do the estimates, you know, so you, you could mount the sensors, I'm sure. And and what do you think about the irrigation management? There's been a lot of, a lot of movement between... Fruition science and Thule and Brian Ron with the temperature sensors and uh, you know better better tensiometers and there, there's I, I think as we get into more severe weather situations, not only the management of irrigation but the conservation of water are going to become bigger and bigger issues. Um, look what's going on in Russian River. Uh, this year with uh, cutting off riparian uh, or rights to pump from the river. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what, what, do you, uh, what do you see there? You know, when, um, like in the early 80s, I got, we bought a pressure bomb at Shandong when people weren't really using that. That was early. Yeah. And I, 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 my first lesson was by Benami Bravdo, who was a irrigation researcher in Israel? He was right. here on a sabbatical, I think. <clears throat> and um, 
So I was a big pressure bomb guy for a while. And, and actually, when I started consulting, I did pressure bombing for a few people. And I, I kind of realized the shortcoming of it, like if it was cloudy, eh, I didn't take readings. If it was real hot, the numbers were sky high, even though I knew the vines weren't that stressed. So I almost bought a parameter, um, but clients had their own and they were taking readings, so I didn't really need to do that. And um, so I was always a plant measurement right. um, aficionado. But lately I've become um, really uh, a fan of soil moisture, especially in these drought years where, you know, it's April and you have no idea, are the vines okay? Because it's too early to take any readings. But you can see the soil moisture is is okay, and um, you know they're only taking moisture from the top foot kind of thing, and so and there's better better um, soil moisture instruments these days, I think. Really better than the neutron probe. Yeah, like ones where you can get continuous readings at different different heights in the so soil. So you get real time readings. Yeah, yeah. And and more than that, you know, with the neutron probe, you get you get a bar chart right. versus curves and um, where you can see the pattern of the soil drying out versus a once-a-week point in time. And um, you can see when you irrigate and how, it, how the moisture level comes up and then it draws down and then you irrigate and you can see if you're um, in the groove and not stressing too much or irrigating too much or too soon. And um, so I, I'm become a bigger fan of the soil moisture readings. Do you think the ideal, so, I don't know about solution, but the, the ideal methodology would be to use a combination? It seems to me, like you point out, it would be very effective to, to irrigate a, a dry soil in April before the season really started, and you certainly can't measure the vine. On the other hand, you know, you're probably in, in mid-May, uh, probably pressure bomb is pretty good. Um, it seems like the parameter readings are great until late in the season, and then, you know, the, the vines, the leaves start to senesce, and it's hard to understand if you're seeing stress or just senescent leaves. So it seems like, and then we always have the observation of the vineyard and looking at the tendrils. So it seems like some combination is probably the best the best approach. Yeah, I think the soil, the um, plant-based, really what they're good for is telling you when to start irrigating. And um, if you're irrigating once a week, like some people do, um, it's, you know, it kind of gives you feedback how you're doing. You know, if the numbers are creeping up and up and up, you probably need to irrigate either more often or, or more. And, um, but I think they can be use, more useful maybe for people who like to give a big drink every few weeks because you can watch the, you know, you give it the big irrigation and the numbers go way down and the vine's not stressed and then it starts to... Um, get more and more stress, and when you hit the trigger again, you could irrigate again. Um, 
And even if you're not doing it that way, you're getting feedback on how the vine is is doing after the big irrigation. And um, and in a way, with the big irrigation, you're waiting for the trigger again. Mm-hmm. So you're waiting for the when, not the how much. And um, so I think the plant base are, in my experience, best for knowing when to irrigate. And the soil moisture... And the thing about the soil moisture, there, I don't think there's an exact point where you would know when to irrigate um, uh, because you have to know exactly the refill point of that soil, and I'm not sure everybody knows exactly where that is. But um, So I think a combination is the ultimate, yeah. And are you, where do you fall on the big drink, uh, little drink uh, controversy? I like the big drink if you, you know, have fairly deep soils. I'm not a true believer that it's best even if you're on craggy, rocky soil somewhere. Um, although I've seen people do that and it seems to work. But intuitively, it seems more most applicable when you have a little bit of soil depth and some loam and, um, and it's going to last for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Then where do you think we're going in terms of, of pest and disease control? Do you see new strategies, new products on the market? Do you think everyone's going to end up going organic, or is organic going to put us into danger when we have things like uh, red blotch and you know vectors that you know leaf roll that are are not being controlled as well? Yeah, I. Um you know, I mentioned I started out as an organic gardener. And I remember I was sort of crushed when I found out that most vineyards, at least in the early 70s, weren't farmed organically. Like, why not? Um, and um, I kind of lost my uh, organic virginity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I think there's... Um, I think there's some things that make organic difficult. Like if you're on a low phosphorus site, it's a little, it's a challenge to deal with that organically. Um, and pest-wise, um, you know, doing trapping and releasing beneficial insects and stuff, um, that's, that's helpful. Um, but there are times where it's, it's a tough one. And also not always the most environmentally sound, you know, lots of passes, lots of diesel, lots of compression of the soils, uh, nonspecific products that kill everything rather than, you know, very focused uh, synthetics like a plod. Um, it, it's not as black and white as people would like us to think. That's true. and But I see people who do a really good job organically. and. Right, no um, and, you know, a little bit of it is um, maybe back in the 70s, it was, it was kind of, um, you know, seeing a couple of bugs out there, you wanted to nuke them. And right. I think um, I think our, uh, our metrics have changed. I yeah. think we're, we're okay seeing some bugs out there and, uh, <clears throat> you know, some foliar symptoms that aren't serious uh, 
So we're not trying to sterilize the vineyard. Right, right. And do, do you, at, at, the, at the risk of getting hate mail, uh, where do you stand on biodynamics? Do you think there's any validity to biodynamics? Um, I'm accepting of people <laughs> who are biodynamic. <laughs> I have an open mind. No, I had a client who was biodynamic, and um, although they weren't as orthodox about the timing of sprays and stuff, it was more, um, you know, burying the ho the horns and uh, some things like that. But um, I. I, I'm a little cynical. I mean, I tend to be cynical in general uh, of things, and um, but I, I wouldn't not work for somebody who was biodynamic. I, I have a, I have a problem with the non-scientific nature uh, or the anti-scientific nature of biodynamics and the um, deification of these uh, archaic. You know, don't plant at this time of year. And I mean, these were things that were disproven 300 years ago, if not longer. And um, I think using softer and softer products and, and uh, focused products that, that don't do uh, ancillary damage is, is the direction we should all be going. Um, but on the smallest carbon footprint we can, I think... Um, that's that's a direction you know I would like to see us all using electric tractors um, but it's again not a simple black and white black and white uh, question that's for sure yeah and I mean I wouldn't want to farm my place biodynamically I mean I wouldn't farm it biodynamically I agree with some of your issues um, but I've seen fantastic vineyards that are biodynamic. And I think, you know, maybe they, there's some spiritual stuff involved, but, but the attention to detail is, is really good. And maybe yeah. that's sort of the trade-off. It gets you out in the vineyard a lot, yeah. and you're really tuned in, and that, that's, that's always beneficial. One of the things I think that's exciting, and I did have Brian Ron on uh, last season, uh, the spore traps and the use of spore traps, I think, can really um, get us focused. Um, you know, the tons of sulfur that are dusted and sprayed on organic and conventional vineyards worldwide are, are kind of staggering. Uh, and they're involved with acidification of the soils and irritation of of the mucous membranes of anyone nearby and the compaction of soils and the burning of diesel. And if we don't have to be doing it because there's no spores, isn't that a great thing? Yes. You know, when I was a Chardonnay vineyard manager in Carneros, um, I had Doug Goobler out because we, would, we had horrible mildew problems. And it turned out that um, we were one of the two first vineyards in the world to have resistance to Balaton. We would have had to spray it every two days to have control, he said. 
My goodness. And in those days, the only thing that worked was sulfur. And we would sulfur literally, religiously. I would have the guys pick a day of the week. Tuesday, okay, every Tuesday, we start spraying. And, um, or dusting. We did dusting too. And that, that worked better than anything. And, you know, soon other materials started coming out that were better than Peloton. Um, and uh, it became easier. But, um, yeah, the, we had spore traps out there. And he trapped um, spores that he thought were from Marin County. It was, um, I can't remember what it was that, the, that he was trapping, but that the closest place was probably Marin, Marin County. So they fly around. Yeah. And um, I know, like, in the insect world, um, for vine millibug, we're trapping for males and using um, mating disruption. Uh, you really should wait until the first males get trapped. There's no reason to do mating disruption when there's no males to disrupt. Um, so that's another case where that's information that can help reduce pesticide use and and do a better job too. And one of the other subjects in regards to that is is resistant varieties. Uh, uh, one of the people in the program, the pruning program at University of Bordeaux, I went to was a young Italian guy, and he his raison d'être was these resistant varieties that come out of Switzerland. They're vinifera, uh, but they're resistant to powdery mildew and downy mildew. So you don't have to dust or spray at all. Um, and the old resistance to anything but, you know, the five varieties everyone knows are, I think it's breaking down now that people are farming Aceterica and, you know, uh, Albareño and, you know, things that no one heard of 10 years ago. Uh, so, you know, I think there may be opportunities for these. Yeah, I'm, um, you know, that and global warming. Um, I mean, my joke as a Carneros guy was global warming, great. I can grow Cabernet and Carneros and make some real money. But actually, it's not a good match, I don't think. But um, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of talk of growing warmer climate varieties and at first, I thought, there's no way people are going to pull Cabernet and plant Albarino or... Um, Tempranillo. Yeah. Right. Um, but I kind of like the idea. Um, I mean, I love the idea of growing Italian varieties. I mean, I'm a romantic about Italy. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, Although it didn't, it hasn't really worked. The Cal Atal has, yeah. has pretty, you know, not been a big success. Or Greek varieties. I or know, Greek Spanish, varieties. Uh, Sicilian. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I think that's kind of exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess our generation isn't going to do that. But I know. Maybe, uh, maybe Sam's generation, your son, will dabble in that. And um, things will change. Yep, things will change. 
That's whether we want them to or not. <laughs> well, I think that's. You have any any final final thoughts? Uh, anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? You know, <clears throat> consulting. Um, when I first started, I thought I'm, I wouldn't be a good consultant. I'm not like a person who tells people what to do, but you used the term problem solving and. I like working with younger people. First of all, they give you a lot of energy, and they have new ideas. And I think a good consultant learns from the clients, too. And um, so I have very good feelings about the future of our business. I mean, I worry about fires and things like that, but I think in terms of dealing with what's coming, I'm very positive about the younger generation. Yeah, there's a lot of enthusiasm, and I, it's, I don't know if you've gone to a VitTech meeting lately, but I can't get over how many women, the women outnumber the men. Hmm. And um, I think that's a great, a great change from the time you and I started. Um, and I think it brings uh, a, different, a different energy, a different sensibility, and... Um, and the, the, other, the other point, of course, is getting more Hispanic people educated and involved because where would we be without, without the, the crews and the, the workers that enable us to do so much? And I'd like to see them moving, moving up into management and more scientific education. I think it's a really... It would, really assure a bright future for California agriculture. I agree 100%. And I think we're seeing that happen, um, certainly way more than when we started out. Right. So, um, so I love the enthusiasm. I love the, the changes that are going on. Yeah. Good. Thanks, Millennials Zach. and Gen whatever, go yes, get them. <laughs> go get them. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Zach. All right. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Season 2, Episode 4 of The Winemaker's Journey, a conversation with viticulturist Zach Berkowitz. Our theme music is the original tune Magnanimous, composed and played by Don Sternberg. You can hear it on his CD, Mandoboppin'. Check out the show notes for more information. And thank you again for listening to The Winemaker's Journey.